Welcome back to Presidential Podcast. This is Philip. This is Robert. And we just finished off Polk with our last episode, so today we're going to be, as promised, going into our discussion on John Quincy Adams. And um, do you have any opening remarks that you want to add? Well, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I'd like to apologize to the uh, listeners for the scratchy condition of the last podcast, which uh, was the result of a remote recording session. I apologize, and hopefully our future uh, podcast will have a better technical quality. I thought it was a, a good substantive presentation, and I hope to continue that with uh, this presentation. And uh, Personally, I find uh, John Quincy Adams, who we would probably be referring to either as Adams or as Q in this uh, segment, uh, I personally find him one of the more compelling biographies among the U.S. presidents, among the 45 men who became U.S. president. He was very highly educated. He had enormous experience as a boy, as an adolescent, as a young man, <clears throat> serving uh, as uh, a diplomatic aide or as a diplomat in the various European capitals. He uh, saw up close the leading European figures at the time, which uh, in terms of the United States, which in the period contemporary to John Q. Adams was basically on the eastern seaboard, uh, so the European powers were extremely uh, important to our national orientation, our national culture. Um, Adams saw those people up front and personal. He spoke uh, several languages. We know he was uh, entirely fluent in French. Apparently his Russian was very good. Apparently he was highly conversant in German. Uh, he was educated to read and write in the classical languages, which is the old-fashioned way of referring to classical Latin and classical Greek. So he was uh, highly immersed and steeped in the uh, traditional Western values of the time. As I mentioned, he was entirely fluent in French, the language of diplomacy and the language of culture in his time. Uh, his English was very good. Uh, and he came from a family in which education and intellectual accomplishment were highly prized. I mean, there's four, maybe five generations of Adams men who wrote, who served as diplomats, who served in high echelons of American politics. Can you, can you, can we kind of start off with giving a bit of a background on some of the, you know, his father, not, obviously not getting all the way into his because you know we might know do a different episode on his father, but his father and the men before his father, grandfather, etc., like that, and just give a little background to who his family was and and 
who the notable people in his family were? Well, I, I think before Where they were from. before uh, John Adams, John Q. Adams' father, uh, the Adams were members of what we might term the Franklin or the yeoman class of the uh, English uh, society. These are families who own very productive acreage, uh, make good livings as farmers, uh, who have the resources to buy ships, to buy shares on ships' cargoes, and to make a great deal of money in mercantile uh, endeavors. So uh, the way they did consignments for ship freighting back then is a uh, ship would get set to leave port, uh, a number of merchants would get together, and wealthy farmers would get together, they'd buy a cargo, they'd send it abroad, uh, the ship would go abroad, sell the cargo or trade the cargo for some kind of goods which uh, they thought they could sell back at the home port, the ship would come back with manufactured products if it went to, to Europe or with various agricultural products if they went to other parts of the Atlantic community. They'd sell the goods in the home port and then the profits would be split among the men who uh, capitalized the venture. So if there was a big profit, they made a lot of money off it. If the ship got delayed, if the ship lost the cargo, if for some reason a whole bunch of ships came into port at the same time with the same cargo, they didn't make as much money. So there was a lot of acumen entailed. You know, you had to know where to send the ship. You had to know what goods were going to command high prices when they were resold in your home port. And you had to have the connections to, to get the goods out to the people who would bid high on them and, and buy them for high prices. So um, Q's uncle, Samuel Adams, uh, uh, an important name in the American Revolution, uh, was a, a highly successful merchant, you know, and he was engaged in, in these kinds of commercial activities at the Port of Boston. His grandfather was a, was a prosperous farmer who had ambitions for the family, sent John Adams to law school. Um, originally, he was kind of slated to become a congregational minister. Congregationalism was the dominant religious denomination of Massachusetts, and the congregational ministers had enormous political and social prestige. They more or less ran the colony. The people served in office, but uh, there was not the same tenure in office that we have now. Uh, people tended to serve six, eight years, uh, which would be three to four terms in office. The governors tend to serve a couple of terms, a couple of two-year terms in office. So there was a, a, a circulation in the political offices. So the ministers were the ones who maintained the continuity. They were the ones who more or less picked the successors uh, for the new office holders. So the, the grandfather thought 
John should go into ministry and maintain part of that way. John, because of his aptitudes and his strong character, saw that the congregational hold on the colony, remember back then it was still a British colony, saw that the congregationalist hold on the colony was weakening and he opted for law. So he, he became a lawyer and he uh, defended the uh, British soldiers who were uh, in, indicted for murder uh, after the Boston Massacre, the infamous uh, episode in which British troops were moving from one port of the city to another, were beset by a crowd, a uh, crowd which threw rocks and, and garbage at them. Uh, they turned and fired and killed a number of the, of the crowd, Crispus Attucks being the name that comes down through history to us. Attucks was a, uh, an African-American freedman, uh, for whatever reason received a fatal shot and uh, Adams successfully defended the British troops in that, uh, in that episode. So he was a very independent-minded person, but he did become one of the revolutionary uh, forebears. I mean, he uh, served as minister in France with Jefferson. Uh, was he the same? He's older than Jefferson? Yeah, he's a little bit older than Jefferson, a few years. They were the same generation. I mean, they would have been in school together, mm -hmm. but Adams might have been a junior or a senior when Jefferson was a freshman, and, you know, in modern terms. And, um, and they started a friendship early on, and it was a lifelong friendship. Well, it, it, it had its ebbs and flows. I mean, right. they were friends as young men, then they had a falling out, then they became friends again as older men. But... Uh, Adams was definitely the intellectual powerhouse among the revolutionary generation. I mean, he was the one who basically figured out the, uh, the thrust. I mean, we, we think of Tom Paine uh, and Common Sense as being the seminal work. Uh, Adams didn't sponsor Tom Paine, but Adams was the one who convinced the revolutionary group to accept Tom Paine's ideas as the basis of the revolution. Tom Paine was a better writer than Adams or any of the other uh, political types, so he's the one whose name we remember, but Adams was basically the one who uh, threshed out the intellectual ideas of, of the American Revolution. And Adams was the one who was able to keep Congress together, he was the one who brought back goodies from France and he just generally was was uh, you know the behind the scenes political uh, nuts and bolts guy who kept the revolution on track uh, for that reason he was chosen as Washington's vice president and uh, was chosen as Washington's successor and became the second president of the United States where he served one term Adams, John Adams, John Q's father, had a very prickly temperament. He was very combative personally. He uh, constantly said what he thought. Uh, and he, he, he did have a tendency towards a little, well, not a little. He had a, a strong tendency toward pompousness. Uh, 
uh, on the first session of the new Congress after the Constitution was passed. Adams, as the vice president, as the presiding officer of the U.S. Senate in the first, very first session that Congress met, showed up to stand behind the rostrum wearing a sword. Adams had never been a soldier, never been a warrior. For him, the sword was a huge affectation. The sword and the sword belt wrapped around his enormous girth led to his uh, public humiliation under the term of his rotundity mm. at the time when George Washington was referred to as His Excellency. Mm. Uh, Q, uh, having served in St. Petersburg, which then was the capital of Russia, having served in Potsdam, the capital of Prussia, having served in Paris, capital of France, in Madrid, the capital of Spain, having lived in London, the capital of the uh, what had just become the United Kingdom, uh, was a lot more uh, sedate and more relaxed in his personal uh, presentation than his father, and uh, saw his father's humiliation and realized that he had to show a more uh, sober and less ostentatious type of public uh, image. Was it a matter, do you think it was a matter of different temperament or was it a matter of political expediency f or for uh, the difference in personalities between John Quincy and his father? Well the wife, uh, John Adams' wife, who's first name at the moment is escaping me, you know. uh, and John Q's mother was an incredibly astute political actor, mm -hmm. and she tutored uh, Q to, to, to a great extent. Abigail, right? Abigail, thank you. Abigail Adams. Uh, and, and her family also were, were quite prominent. That's she how was educated? Extremely intelligent and extremely sensitive to public uh, public opinion. He was educated by his mother mostly. Well, he was away from home for a lot. Like when he was in Saint Petersburg, he was like nine to mm. thirteen or so, mm. and they sent him away by himself. Okay. Uh, he was under. I want to say Rutledge, but I may I might be be wrong on that name. But he was under the direct control of the U.S. Council ambassador, whatever his title was, mm -hmm. and that man took him into into his family, took care of him as, as one of his own children, mm -hmm. and saw to his education mm -hmm. and instruction. Mm -hmm. um, so his his um, his the years of when he was being formed, his formative years were not always in the home, but maybe he was already, was he already expected to do prominent things? Also, you know, you talked about um, his grandfather wanting John Adams, his father, to get into the ministry as a means of maintaining civic power, but I think, and John Adams, I think, is famously agnostic or somewhat... A deist. A deist, all right. But John Quincy Adams is more traditional 
uh, Congregationalist. And more devout than his father. Probably. So, at that period, the European aristocracy uh, had their children raised by tutors and nannies and other surrogates. Uh, Adams, Q, John Q. Adams, was one of the first Americans to be one of the first prominent Amer excuse me one of the first prominent Americans to be brought up in that tradition. And this was a tradition which quickly took hold among the upper classes in the United States. So uh, he was kind of a forerunner of a form of, of child-rearing which would become kind of a hallmark of the American establishment. And uh, during the Gilded Age, there were 400 families which basically dominated America. During the colonial period, there was kind of a, of a, of a similar group in each of the colonies. Mm. So there were 13 different sets of interrelated families of great wealth who dominated each of the colonies. And of course, uh, people like Aaron Burr, I'm sorry, people like Alexander Hamilton came from abroad, Hamilton was born in the West Indies, came from abroad and were able to make their way very successfully in the new colonies. Uh, people like Paul Revere, who came from very humble back, background, families with no real holdings, were able to become prominent, well-to-do people based on their work and their diligence and their acumen. So there were these three big strains, the, the, the landed gentry and, and mercantile class, the strivers like Paul Revere, and the gifted immigrants like Tom Paine and Alexander Hamilton. Uh, Paine, I believe, came from Northern Ireland. Hamilton, as I said, from the West Indies. So these were the people who made up the American elite uh, during this period. Now... Um Okay. Did uh, what was the prominence of Massachusetts in that period compared to what it is today? So Massachusetts and Virginia were the most populous states. Virginia was kind of spread out in what we refer to as the Tidewater region. The parts of Virginia that are riparian, that where the Chesapeake Bay pushes saline water upstream uh, into the into the streams and provides the motive power for sailing ships to go inland. So there was what they called the northern neck, the middle neck, and the peninsula. The northern neck is along the Potomac. Uh, the middle neck is south of that and has the James on the south and I forget which river on the north. And then the peninsula is the part where Yorkton is on Yorktown on one side and uh, Richmond on the other side. It's, it's the largest of the three. And basically, Virginia society grew up along those three areas. So Virginia society was very insular, uh, very agrarian-based. They had a lot of slaves. And uh, they basically sent tobacco back to England and tobacco was so highly prized, they, they made enormous amounts of money from it. 
Boston was the center of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, highly urbanized, very densely populated. Basically, they lived on fish that they caught off the Grand Banks in uh, off Nova Scotia, in the Grand Banks off Nova Scotia, and they supplied timber, some other materials back to the English, back to the West Indies. They imported molasses, and they made rum, which they then traded either to the British or to the other colonies for money with which they bought uh, industrial goods. Okay. Um, and and politically, they were they were they, those were the two. At this, those are probably the two most prominent. Well, they were prominent because they were the most most populous. Um, they also uh, tended to be uh, hotbeds of Whiggery. So the Whigs were a mid eighteenth century political movement in England, who believed in limiting the powers of the monarchy. Okay. And they produced the uh, intellectual ideas of representation, citizenship, civic rights, civil rights, which affected the colonists. Uh, they, they basically, because of their ideas about the limitations of the monarch, the powers of the monarch, the civic powers of the monarch, the Whigs were the contravening force to the monarch. And, you know, I, I think it's a fairly obvious or self-evident uh, way to, to look at the American Revolution, that they thought they were English, they thought they were part of the British Commonwealth, and they thought that the Hanoverian King George, the grandson of an imported German, who the British said is their monarch, was exceeding his rights as the monarch and impinging on their civil rights. So that was the basis of the revolution. Okay. Um, when, when John Quincy Adams comes back from abroad after being raised there and goes to Harvard, is he already... Is he already Form pretty much in, in like is he pretty much already in agreement philosophically with the movement? What period are we in? Is the is the are the states already established? So the U.S. was already uh, an ongoing country by the time he went to St. Petersburg. Um, he was the son of a very prominent politician. He was part of a family which was very wealthy and prominent in Boston. He spoke numerous languages. He had lived abroad. His experience in living abroad was not like being a middle class uh, sort of person or a peasant. His experience in living abroad was being in tutoring sessions with the, the, the best French tutors, uh, interacting with the aristocratic youth of his age, uh, witnessing the ministerial meetings between the American ministers, the American foreign ministers, and their European counterparts. So he probably went to uh, Harvard 
as a rather sophisticated and worldly individual. But he did have a degree of piety, probably similar to Washington's. Washington went to church every week. He contributed to the church. He believed that religion was a strong uh, influence in civic development. Uh, Adams probably shared those ideas fairly well. And Adams saw right up in St. Petersburg the despotism that existed in Europe at the time. So he probably had a very strong affinity toward the American experiment of, of freedom and of civil rights. Okay, so then he gets, he goes to law school, he gets out, he begins practicing in Boston, and then he goes into a political career. So how does that start off? So, uh, one, one always has to ask, why didn't he go into commerce, become like a corporate lawyer, instead of becoming a politician? So I think this stems from a couple of things. I mean, uh, on the corporate side, obviously Adams has huge connections abroad, uh, probably had fungible connections. You know, he could probably say, I'm going to write to Prince Alexander back in St. Petersburg, and we'll get you some kind of a franchise over there, and we can make a ton of money. Uh, why didn't he do that? Probably it has to do with the direct influence of his parents. His mother, who thought, you know, we're well enough off. We don't have to pursue wealth. Um, and his father, who was a prominent politician. I mean, Adams probably, Quincy, probably had a certain amount of affinity towards his father, uh, certainly towards Jefferson, and thought a public career is a worthwhile way for me to spend my, my life. Right. My cousins are making plenty of money. Our family is not going to be poor. So, uh, I can I can serve the republic. I can assure that the rights of the people will be protected, mm -hmm. and I can uh, make a decent living at it. I mean, I don't know what if they were paid by salaries or if they were paid by uh, retainers to prominent uh, merchants. I suspect the latter that Quincy probably had a lot of uh, retainers, that he was paid by prominent Boston merchants. So he probably had enough money to fulfill his social obligations as a prominent government official. Uh, but I, th I think he really had a very strong public service ethos. And again, his both his parents would have been pushing him towards that. Did he have a good relationship with his father? There's, there's always a degree of rivalry between fathers and sons, but uh, I would suspect that the Adams relationship was uh, Adams pair a Phils. So uh, when I was a teenager, riding through France with my parents, we went to a lot of little small towns. And we would ride into these places and we'd see, you know, 
boulangerie. Etan Père Ephils, which means the butcher, uh, Stephen's father and son. And I think in the 18th century, as in modern France, there was a strong predilection towards the son taking over the family business. And John Adams had established the Adams family business as government. And John Q. Adams uh, probably was following in his father's footsteps, taking over the family business. Sure. Um, did he have a relationship with, with Washington? It's not well documented, but Washington was such a esteemed and gigantic figure. Uh, Adams and Washington were not particularly close, but they were very, very uh, good very compatible business and political associates. So Washington probably looked favorably on on John Q. I mean, Washington died in 1800 before John Q. became prominent. Um, But John Q. probably would have been more towards the Reverend Weems uh, school. Uh, Reverend Weems was the one who came up with the story about the cherry tree. Reverend Weems wrote a book idealizing George Washington. Adams probably would have supported that pretty wholeheartedly. John Q. Adams probably would have supported that pretty wholeheartedly. Okay, so get into the beginning of his political career. Well, I would say the beginning of his political career was when he was nine years old. No, I mean once he's a grown-up. So, all right, so um, I believe his first office was Senate, right? Mm-hmm. So. Uh, the Senate at that time was, uh, senators were nominated and appointed by the state legislatures. Um, back then, if we were talking about the United States, united would be an adjective, maybe not even capitalized. States would have been capitalized. Um, the uh, common person probably thought of himself more as a citizen of his state, North Carolina, Georgia, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, than he thought of himself as an American. So we can almost compare, and I'm stretching the point a little bit here, but we can almost compare the senators to ambassadors where each state sent the two senators to Washington to represent the state interests in the national government. Okay, does he serve as a, is he a federalist at this time or? New England was was like, you know, heart and soul federalist. Okay, can you explain again basically the difference between federalists and their opponents? So, New England was oriented towards the ocean and towards commerce. I mean, the New England soil is terrible. Farming there is a nightmare. The weather is terrible. The soils are thin and stony, not particularly fertile. Um, They depended heavily on fishing and on the sea for their food. Um, The main protein source was probably cod. 
they were very ingenious. Uh, Connecticut farmers would go out in the winter, cut big chunks out of the ice in their ponds and rivers, put them in ice houses, and sell the ice during the summer. So, you know, I mean, they couldn't grow crops, so they sold the ice instead. Um, New England has a lot of streams. Uh, very early on, the uh, Yankees, the New Englanders, recognized that they could harness the streams for power, mm -hmm. and they began industrialization. I mean, Slater's Mill in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, is the first factory founded in the United States. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, all right, so he, he goes, at, he's, a, he's a senator, he's only a senator for one term, then um, this is during Jefferson's presidency, right? Mm -hmm. And then he is appointed minister to Russia, on, first minister to Russia under Madison. Do you want to add anything about that? Can we move on to him being Secretary of State? Well, his, his ambassadorial career was distinguished, but not exemplary. I mean, he, he, he knew these people. He had been doing this since his teen years. He knew how the State Department worked. He knew how uh, ambassadorial courtesy worked. He knew how ambassadorial negotiations worked. He understood the, the forms that he had to fill out, the administrative aspects of it. So he took high-level ambassadorial jobs, great prestige and served honorably and diligently in them and continued to advance. Uh, by the time, uh, was, it, was it Monroe who appointed him as Secretary of State? Madison. Or by the time uh, Madison needed someone to be Secretary of State, he saw John Q as a... Logical pick. Well, he wasn't just a logical pick because of his background and his uh, his 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 skill in ambassadorial work, but he also saw him as a as a good political pick. He didn't see Adams as somebody who's going to come back and run for president and threaten him. He also he also needed to balance the ticket. You know, he needed prominent New England men in his cabinet. That's that's something that I wanted to get back to a little bit that you didn't touch on when I, when we when you're talking about Massachusetts. The Federalists versus his opponents, what was the difference in perspective? Because you were talking about how much ingenuity the Massachusetts had, but not how they were oriented politically. All right, so, so the, the commercial manufacturing, fishing, maritime endeavors in Massachusetts obviously forced you to look out towards other countries particularly Britain, but also toward France and Russia. Um, so the New Englanders tended to like the idea of a, a relatively strong central government, which could protect them abroad. Uh, they liked the idea of no boundaries between the states, no significant boundaries between the states, because they were trying to sell 
manufactured goods up and down the eastern well, seaboard. Well, also being one of the largest states means you have as much more power than relatively smaller states in federal well, that's centralized true. government. Um, but I, I don't want to get to that quite yet. Um, New England also was a banking center. Philadelphia was probably the only comparable banking center. Um, Charleston, to a lesser extent, but but uh, Boston, Philadelphia back then were the main banking centers. Obviously, banking doesn't want to be limited to a province or a city. They want to be able to, to loan money uh -huh. to whoever has the collateral and the ability to pay back. So New England had a very, very expansive view of the central government. Madison, you'll recall, wrote the Constitution. Uh -huh. So he was the, the, he was the embodiment of federalism. The anti-federalists, which was the other party, uh, were against it. They were more into states' rights. And, and who were the big figures in the anti-federalism? Jefferson. And who else? Uh, mostly Jefferson. I mean, there were a few others. There was somebody from South Carolina, Burr, uh -huh. uh, was uh, another big figure. But Burr tended to move the party away from anti-federalism, and he had the concept of the Democratic Republicans. So the Constitution established the United States as a republic. Um, they wanted to expand the idea of republicanism from a government of the elite to make it more democratic. And Burr, uh, who represented the banking interests of New York, along with Hamilton, so they were rivals. Um, so Burr was in the other party from Hamilton. Uh, Burr tended to represent more the banking interests. So he was, he was influential in changing the orientation of the anti-federalists from being merely anti-federalist to actually having a national outlook. Okay. So Adams and Hamilton, uh, who was the Secretary of the Treasury in the first cabinet, had more of a, of a view towards the federalists as the party that was going to improve the country. Okay. Now, all right, so he finishes... I mean, he's go from one. Let me, let me say one other thing uh, before we go on. At, at the time that Adams was the Secretary of State, oh, well, that's what I was going to get to. We viewed the uh, the uh, the Indians as sovereign peoples. Okay. And in the Northwest, because uh, the British ceded the Northwest to us, which is Ohio, Indiana, mm -hmm. Michigan, mm -hmm. parts of Illinois a little bit of Minnesota, we viewed that as an intrinsic part of the United States and as a, a natural place to move, uh, establish new states and move our population westward. Uh, so we had the diplomatic dilemma of having sovereign nations existing within our national borders. So the relations with the Indians were also an important part of the Secretary of State's duties. Mm -hmm. And Adams really, I don't think he was so much in favor of uh, taking away the Indians' rights. I think he was looking for a solution which would preserve their, a degree of sovereignty for them, protect their, their rights, but at the same time allow the Americans to expand around them and with them. So uh, he had a less 
acquisitive view towards the Indians. There were other people okay. like Matt Anthony Wayne who wanted to fight the Indians and drive them out. And in the South, because there was that balance between the North and the South, mm -hmm. people like Jackson sought to uh, acquire Spain. That's what I was going to ask. Alabama Florida. and Mississippi. I'm sorry, Florida from Spain, mm -hmm. but also Alabama and Mississippi. And so that there would be room for southern states, slaveholding states in the South, to counterbalance the entrance into the Union okay. of the non-slave states in the North. Do you, can you explain then a bit about how... So he's, he's under Monroe, he's Secretary of State, and there are the natives bordering, and there are also Spanish colonies, like, like Florida and New Spain, I believe. And mm -hmm. how does he... A lot of times we don't talk about how Spain was acquired. Do, do, can you explain so, that? So, so Jackson just decided to take Spain. Okay, but what was going on with the Seminoles at the time? Well, the Seminoles might not have existed at the time. I mean, we're not sure if the Seminoles were an indigenous tribe or if they were a, a group of people agglomerated from the so-called civilized tribes and the escaped slaves. Okay. Seminoles might be something that started in response to the Americans. Okay. I mean, I'm not sh quite sure how that how that. But is. they were. But Spain was having a hard time controlling them. But no, Spain had Florida. Okay. Back then, Florida was like uh, the area around Jacksonville mm -hmm. and Pensacola. Mm -hmm. I mean, the peninsula of, of Florida was pretty much uninhabitable by the Europeans. A lot of swampy land. A lot of mosquitoes not really good for the type of agriculture they did back then. Okay. And uh, s slaves who escaped from mostly Georgia, but also from the territories of Mississippi and Alabama, uh, were not extradited. They could, they, could, they could get to Florida and they could live, live out their lives unmolested by the Spaniards. Okay. So Jackson used that as an excuse to attack Florida. Okay. And they just took it over. Okay. And Adams and defended him. No. <laughs> no, Jackson Jackson was acting on his own as a Tennessee militia commander. Right, no, but Adams ends up making a treaty with a treaty for the US to get Spain to get well, Florida from Spain. We basically held Spain. Mm -hmm. Uh there was an expansionary idea in the United States. We did not want Spain controlling Florida. Well, we didn't want them controlling anywhere. Mm -hmm. And I mean, Madison did not promulgate the Monroe Doctrine, but Monroe was influential at that time. And they were starting to think, we don't want European, big swaths of European territory on the continent with us. So Spain was kind of the test case. I mean, Adams or, um, Jackson forced the Spaniards to either give us Spain or we were going to take it. Florida. Or, uh, thank you for that correction. For Florida. Adams, you know, being a superb diplomat, had to kind of smooth things over, make it work out, and not have America just look like a brigand nation. So he... Did he give anything as concession to Spain for... Money. Just money. Yeah. So we got Louisiana from the French as a purchase... But then Spain, I mean, Florida was more forcefully taken. Florida was taken, but then we, we offered them compensation okay. uh, as for our, our 
uh, acquisition. Okay, so at this time, there's the original 13 colonies, the Appa west of the Appalachians, Louisiana Purchase, now Florida. Soon with Polk, there'll be, well, Polk's later on, but that'll mm -hmm. be Mexico. Right. Texas, New Mexico. Northwest, California. Okay. Oh, Northwest isn't under Polk. Uh, the Oregon settlement, the fifty-four forty-year fight, that was under Polk. Okay, and when and when the Louisiana Purchase happens, doesn't somebody send out? Doesn't um, Jefferson send out Lewis and Clark? And can they get all the way to the Pacific or no? Lewis and Clark were sent out to explore the Louisiana Purchase. Mm -hmm. Okay, um, they basically went up the Missouri River. Mm -hmm. When they got to the headwaters of the Missouri, which I think are like in Idaho or somewhere mm -hmm. like that. Um, they realized they hit the Continental Divide and it's either go back or keep going and see where the Pacific is and they opted to go to the Pacific because we were thinking we wanted to go that way okay um, alright so eight. So Jack, Jackson's coming onto the scene again I mean obviously he's invading Florida 18... Twenty. Who who was who? What's the president? What's the election? In so so. There was uh, Washington. Then the presidency was basically ceded to Adams. Mm -hmm. I mean, the election of eighteen hundred was the first contested election. Mm -hmm. um, Adams ran as the Federalist candidate. Jefferson ran as the Democratic-Republican candidate. Uh, Adams got the more votes, became president. Jefferson got the second most votes, became vice president. Mm -hmm. So they realized immediately that doesn't work. Right. And then in the subsequent election, uh, the two parties each had a full ticket, president mm -hmm. and vice president. And that set, that set the way for the way with do now. Wins. So Jefferson won two terms. Madison, who was a protege of both Washington and Jefferson, became the next president. He was from Virginia. This is 1812. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's 1812 or 18? Yes, 1812. Uh, he became the next president. He fought a war with the British to establish our rights to the continent. You know, to to show that we could get past. Well, the one thing that I saw about, at, at, if we're staying on Quincy for a minute, about his feelings about the War of eighteen twelve is that he was afraid. He was felt we were lucky that we didn't suffer territorial loss from the War right. of eighteen twelve. Well, New England opposed the war mm -hmm. because it disrupted trade, mm -hmm. and Jefferson had that embargo, which just about bankrupted New England. Mm -hmm. So, uh, New England was much more conciliatory. Okay. towards the British okay. than the rest of the country. Okay. But the Westerners in particular, who Jackson and Clay, both, uh, the two dominant personalities of the post-revolutionary generation, mm -hmm. both wanted the Western expansion. Okay. So we're in, so 1812, Madison is elected, right? Is that what you said? Yes. As a protege of Washington. And Jefferson. And he serves how many terms? So he was two terms. Okay, so that brings us up to 18, uh, no, 1820. So then, Monroe, then was Monroe. Oh, okay, Monroe. And so Monroe... Only one term. 
Huh? Only one term. No, Monroe was two terms. So we must be missing something because in 
okay? He didn't see the country as being an oligarchy that should be run by established interests, by established financial interests, and by landed oligarchs. He saw the country as being a country where everybody had the same vote and where the government should protect the civil rights of the average person, the everyday man, and advance his interests. So Jackson really had a unique and highly different political orientation than the others did. Mm-hmm. So, so, so Jackson is probably the most significant figure in our history following Washington. Okay. Okay. So, so, so Jackson was very important. So, you know, in, in even though of, he, in a lot of ways he was a brigand sure, general, sure, sure. he was a slaveholder, you can say all those nasty terms, things about it, true. and they're all true, mm-hmm. but he had a conception of government that advanced So in terms the of the American way the modern, the modern person looks at America as the grand experiment and the, you know, the ideal of democracy in the world, Jackson, in a way, more represents that idea. Jackson made it. Than Washington. Jackson made it. He okay. didn't just That's represent it. I mean, he made it. Washington was an oligarch. Right. Okay. All right. So let's let's go down to the particulars of 1824. So you have the number one vote getter is Jackson, no? Popular vote, and I believe in the Electoral College. And then you have what? Clay. Adam. Okay. And then Adams and Crawford. And then Adams and Crawford. Okay. And Clay has the support from the House. Right. So he could get in. He's the insider. Okay. So what happens? So I want to I want to say a word about Crawford before I go on. Okay. okay. So Georgia was founded by Oglethorpe. Oglethorpe wanted the common man to have a refuge. Oglethorpe founded Georgia as a refuge for debtors. I mean, England had punitive laws against debtors. Yeah, as England would. Mm -hmm. And Oglethorpe said, I want to give these people a chance to start their life, to be good Christians, to make something out of themselves, and opened up Georgia as the refuge for debtors. Crawford represented that. So Crawford was more aligned towards uh, Jackson. Jackson was, you know, uh, an ignoramus in a lot of ways. I mean, he was very, very uneducated. I mean, almost illiterate, savage in his emotional responses to things, completely overpowering as as a... uh, as a personal presence, just you know, beastly. In 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 you know, I mean, if you think of that Beauty and the Beast fable, mm-hmm. but the Beast doesn't have any soft parts to him. Mm-hmm. You start to see Jackson. Okay, all right. He's he you know he was just a monstrous did the, personality. Did the establishment or the elites of the country despise him because they of that? were scared shitless okay. of him okay. I mean to, 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 to be quite sure, blunt sure, sure. and I, I, I read a, a a lengthy article written at the time that Jackson is going to destroy civilization okay. he's going to turn things over to the uneducated unwashed illiterate you know people whose whose only skill is like wielding a hammer okay. or standing behind a plow you okay. know these people are just barely above the level of the draft animals that they're directing. Mm-hmm. They have no business running the government, and Jackson's going to destroy society. Quite a different figure than John Quincy Adams, who's basically 
his refinement is his uh, salient point. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. They're like night and day. Okay. And then, and what's clay? Clay is like the smartest thing that ever existed. I mean, he's he's. If you think of the cat in the hat, you think of the cat. Mm-hmm. That's clay. Okay. I mean, I think that the cat in the hat was even drawn to look like clay. Okay, all right. So how does it all break down in 1824? So, so, so clay is the masterful politician. Mm-hmm. Uh, thinks that he can wire the Electoral College. Mm-hmm. And realizes that he does not have the popular support to beat Jackson. Because you need at least some popular votes. You think, even though it's, it is the House that... that is it the house that votes you in or this? It's the house. It's the electoral you. college. Yeah, it's the house. It's the electoral college. Oh, okay. But then if the electoral college is hung, it, it goes, goes to the, the house. house. Okay, so he thinks well, I can hang the electoral college because there's enough people in here, and then I'm gonna get to the house, and they're gonna put me. In he thinks he's been speaker of the house multiple times. He thinks if he can get these two regional candidates into the mix, mm-hmm. they, Adams, Adams and Crawford, up the Northeast, and Crawford blocking up Georgia, and he gets Virginia too. That, right? he, that he can that he can block Jackson Jackson from an electoral college. And majority. there's no way the House is gonna put Jackson in. And there's no way the House is gonna put Jackson. Okay. In. And Clay thinks he's the master of the House to a sufficient degree that he can put himself in. He's not like LBJ. Yeah. He is. Yeah. Okay. So so they, you know, get the electoral college deadlocked. Whatever procedure they go through to throw it to the house, they throw it to the house. And they get there and lo and behold, because New England has such a proliferation of states and the house vote is by state Mm -hmm. not by member Mm -hmm. so each of the state delegations have to sit among themselves decide which presidential candidate they're going to support and they get one vote oh that's how they do it yeah okay so 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 clay has the biggest block Jackson has the next biggest block, but Adams has a block big enough to prevent either one of them from winning, from achieving the supermajority necessary to win. Okay. And then how do they? How do, and then they? And then so they cut a deal. basically, Jackson fulminates. Clay schemes, and Clay offers Adams the presidency in exchange for a lot of considerations on patronage in the new administration including secretary of state including him becoming secretary of state which would be his next thing to going towards the presidency now when we think about you know why Adams instead of Crawford you know obviously Adams had more states but Adams also was the former secretary of state sure and the law of succession was president vice president secretary of state Mm -hmm. so Adams you know, he had that prestige behind him, so it wasn't a completely uh, political choice. It was a political choice, but at least had enough cover, you know, we're putting a former Secretary of State into the presidency. Obviously, Jackson is outraged. Jackson lived in a perpetual state of outrage, but after this, it reached even greater heights and a greater degree, you know, I mean, as hard as it is to believe that a guy who would shoot somebody, kill him, 
for insulting his wife could reach a higher state of outrage, Jackson managed to ratchet it up. And he famously calls it the corrupt bargain, right? It's, that's what we teach kids in history. It's probably true. Yeah. All right. Very good. So then um, it all comes off. Jackson is furious. Well, he gets his revenge, though. Right? And then, and then how, does, um, how does the country adjust? Are they happy to see Adams president? Does he... Huge degree of, of, of uh, outrage. Okay. All right? Adams was never seen as legitimate president. Okay. You know, I mean... So he was, he was curtailed by that. Worse, yeah. I mean, he, he definitely was. And, and then, you know, he was such a peculiar person. When he lived in Washington, you know, I mean, he didn't particularly like Washington. Nobody liked Washington. Okay. Especially with no air conditioning, Washington is pretty unlivable. Okay. They had those two streets where the government offices were. Yeah. The rest of it was basically a shanty town. Right. And and Adams, you know, like I said, he was a very peculiar personality. He would like get up in the morning, go down to the Potomac a mile away from the White House, take off his clothes, and swim in the river as his his daily bath. Okay. All right. You know. Presidents going down to the Potomac, you know, jumping naked into the stream, you know, get cleaned up. Yeah. And I he, guess he learned that in Mother Russia. I don't know where he learned it, but okay. he did it. And then uh, he, he did he run it or did Clay run it? That's a good question. Adams had a very frosty, formal personality, mm -hmm. and was used to being a diplomat, which means you don't say things directly mm -hmm. so and he he knew the people but I don't think he had the you know the gumption or whatever it is that makes you want to dominate everybody mm -hmm. so we can we can see that Clay was probably the power behind the throne that Adams uh, you know went to the office signed the papers saw the visitors but when it came time, as the expression goes, to cut nuts, Clay was the one with did the knife. He, did he have any um, accomplishments as president? It's one term. It's it's one term. He, he's, it's not a particularly noteworthy term. You know, because the, the division of the country, the extreme outrage of the Jacksonians, I mean, they could still block everything. He didn't have any... He didn't have any he didn't make any efforts to... Um... I think there was a treaty to set the boundary of, of Maine. Okay. And he didn't have any real uh, efforts to bridge the gap between the um, Jacksonians and... Adams was placed in office to give Clay the opportunity to advance himself to the presidency. I think Adams understood that. Jackson certainly understood that and did all in his power to discredit Adams as a way of blocking Clay. It seems like just as a brief overview, his main, he built some roads. Yeah, and like I think they said, like I said, they think they set the main boundary. Yeah, it looks like he wanted to build a road from New Orleans to Washington. Yeah. Um, and, the and, you know, that's, that's a typical Whig kind of project. 
In the South, feared them because of... Uh, abolitionism. Abolitionism, right? Yes. Right. And uh, so... What is it? What, what would you say? Was he... Was he planning on... Does he run for a second term? Was he planning on no, running for a second term? I don't know what he was planning. But, you know, by now, as I said, the Federalist Coalition has come unraveled. And... Adams really didn't have the appeal as, a, as an individual candidate. He really didn't have the understanding of the United States. He really didn't have the popular touch. He really didn't have the... Well, look at the way he's raised in all those right. circles. He really didn't have the contacts with the different factions in the different states to fashion a new coalition. Jackson was a tireless... I mean, they didn't campaign back then. I mean, they didn't go from town to town. But Jackson had fans in every whip-stitch sure. town in America. Sure. And they, they corresponded... They, they uh, campaigned by correspondence. Jackson would write letters to people. Right. And, you know, so Jackson, you know, was back in the Hermitage writing letters and whipping people up and, you know, getting supporters... Clay was busy with the government. Adams was kind of aloof from it all. Well, I mean, he did do the the settlement between Maine, the border settlement between Maine and Canada. But it also seems like, um, I mean, even domestically, just besides the little project, the projects that he put forward, infrastructure projects, basically, that he had a bent. Even though he's a foreign policy guru, maybe way, yeah, he. Um, he didn't want to do more intervention because, I mean, according to just one thing that I'm looking at, it's he had this uh, perspective that, I mean, and you can comment on it, intervention would accomplish little, retard the cause of republicanism, and distract the country from its primary goal of continental expansion. Okay. You know, that's probably written in retrospect. Right, in retrospect. Um the, the mindset that Adams was raised in was, remember, the small you in the United States. Right. Um, even though he was a Federalist, even though he was uh, very strongly allied with the Atlanticist mercantile uh, segments yeah. of, the, of the Federalist Party, right. he didn't really see an expansive role for the central government. Right. It could do things like build roads because obviously, you know, a road has to go through Virginia, through Kentucky, through Arkansas, right. through Louisiana before it gets from Washington to New Orleans. Right. So there had to be some kind of federal intervention right. to get all those states to set the rights of ways, you know, to prevent sure. craft and so on like sure. that. So he had a very uh a very goal-oriented view of federalism. You know, they should only do a certain things. Well, it seems and, like and, was... the, and the Tenth Amendment was important back then. Which was which was uh, the, the their uh, reserve powers clause of that that anything that is not specifically enunciated in the Constitution to be a federal power is, is reserved power. to the states. So I I do think that um, it seems like his. Uh, 
And I want to comment that the Tenth Amendment was basically voided by the Fourteenth Amendment. Which was? The equal protection of the laws of all citizens. Okay. You mean meaning that that gave that again gave the impetus for the federal government to to uh... have a more much more expansive role okay. that that made the federal government the main governmental entity instead of the various state governments. All right, Adam. So it seems to me that Adams is a consolid like a kind of a consolidation pick. How willing he was, or how unwilling he was, he's he's. It really seems he's maintaining the status quo of the Eastern establishment against, in a way, against the movement towards plebeian democracy that Jackson is pushing. But he also seemed wanting to expand the territory, so he did have that kind of element that a lot of the eighteen presidents okay. of the eighteen hundreds really pushed. So, I I tend to view Adams as being very, very much the advocate of the banking and commercial interests of New England. Mm -hmm. So we're pushing east into the Atlantic, mm -hmm. but we're also pushing west into the Great Lakes and into the country beyond the Great Lakes. Mm -hmm. So new markets, new customers, more resources brought under the control of the eastern seaboard mercantilists. Mm. So uh, Adams really wasn't a status quo candidate so much as he was a forceful advocate for eastern money interests. Yeah. Which Jackson opposed. Well, I mean, which Jackson, is establishment, though. Jackson explicitly sure. and forcefully opposed them. Which is an, but is an establishment ideal. Right. Well, one thing, too, that I think is interesting, right? You, you, we talked about how linguistically gifted he was, how he was raised in these kind of, like, circles, aristocratic circles overseas. He did all this traveling. And, and another thing that I looked, that I saw from him is that he wrote extensively in his diary, right? He has right. like a 50-volume diary. Right. And to me, it's just strange. Like, he's so, he's so kind of precocious or gifted linguistically and, and reaches these heights of kind of like intellectual, intellectual refinement, but yet is less effective seems like as a governor and as a communicator broadly than Jackson who's like grows up basically in the sticks and becomes like this you know just with the force of his personality basically takes over the country so 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 part of the 18th century idea of refinement is that you're self-governing you're self-limiting you're aware of your status and you don't seek to expand your uh, personal power, and you don't seek to expand well, the power a, of your class. And that's another thing that they that they talked about, where Adams, John Quincy Adams, is in Russia, and he's communicating with the Tsar, and the Tsar made some joke or whatever, and but it came tr like about how Adams wasn't living lavishly. And Adams basically said that's true, like that he, even as a diplomat, he's trying to live within his means, the means that the U.S. government is providing him as a salaried, basically, employee. 
even though he has resources probably to tap into if he wanted to, which goes back to the idea that, yeah, he could have basically, you know, just taken a materialistic view of things and just kind of like spread the belt out and spread out, you know, and just made a lot of money. Well, let's go back to Washington. Washington did not, did not accept a salary. Okay, right. Washington, you know, was viewed as the disinterested patriot. Right. The Cincinnatus, you know, Cincinnatus was the Roman general who, at times of emergency, they called on to save the Republic right. from some invasion. I mean, maybe Gauls, maybe it was the Cisalpine Gauls. And at the end of the, of the campaign, he went back to his farm. He did not, you know, he had the dictatorial designation. Yeah. But once the emergency was passed, he repudiated the dictatorial designation and went back to being a common farmer and a senator and so on. So that was the ideal that Adams Model. held. Yeah. You know, so this is a classical idea, Republican idea, Whig idea. Well, you see it. it. It all goes back. A lot of it goes back to the way he was raised. A lot of a lot of the things that his his mottos, his ideals, his like obviously he's a he's a he can like even the difference between written word and spoken word. Like Jackson is almost illiterate, but yet can communicate to the masses. Adams is among the most literate people of the time period or of like any time but ba but barely can get his message across effectively in a persuasive manner to the masses. Well that's that's one of the one of the conundrums in government in that, you know I mean you you look at now, I mean think think of, of, of global climate change, the the debate as to whether it's it's anthropomorphic or whether it's a, an entirely uh naturalistic phenomenon. Uh -huh. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it, it's, it's counterintuitive that it's anthropomorphic, but there's very strong scientific evidence that it is. And even if it's not entirely anthropomorphic, the scientific evidence can uh, easily lead to an inference that we're worsening it, sure. that we're worsening speeding it already, it sure. speeding it up, and 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 yet, uh, it's 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 very hard to convince the masses of that. So you know, Adams is kind of like the 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 prototype of this cerebral, highly like a self-disciplined, uh, very principled civil like servant. Gore. Huh? He's like Gore. Yeah, he's a lot like Gore. Yeah. You know, highly principled uh, civil servant who is is very astute, who's very good at running the government efficiently, mm -hmm. but who really can't bring the public along with him. All right, right. That seems seems like the apparent thing. So he loses in eighteen twenty eight. He gets now let me make one other comment before we go on. Okay. One of the aspects of that was that Adams was an abolitionist. Oh, we're going to go into that, though. All right, all right, I'll, I'll wait for your question. So he, he, he loses in 1828, Jackson gets his revenge, Jackson almost cleans the map except for the East Coast uh, bank, like banking and commercial interests that we talked about, the mercantile interests in the, in the Northeast colonies. Jackson takes over. We'll go into Jackson another episode. He goes into his congressional career and does about nine terms 
into his later life and makes a name for himself in a way as an abolitionist. Now, All right, go ahead. So, so Adams, I'm going to say, had a very bloodless view of abolitionism. Okay. I mean, uh, we don't have records of the Adams owned or used slaves. Okay. All right. We can pretty well say they didn't own them. Mm -hmm. Whether or not they used them, you know, that's more problematic because, I mean, they loaned slaves back then. Mm -hmm. I mean, as, as horrible as that sounds, if you think of the slave as, as being a laborer, being a servant, uh, and then the, the services which the slave provides are what you're, you're loaning. Um, how can you live among the American elite at the time, the biggest proportion of whom were slave owners, and not ever had you know a slave mage sure. or a slave manservant or a slave driver, you know, right, not right. not not an overseer, but somebody you know to drive your coach drive or something. Coach, yeah. um, we don't have any records that the Adams even used slaves on loan from people. Okay. You know, it's not to say they never did, but we don't know that they did. So, but he wasn't particularly friendly towards black people. He just had, like, no contact with them. So for him, for Adams, for John Quincy Adams, the question of slavery was very abstract. And it was kind of like, how can I advocate the rights of man and then say these people should be enslaved. Sure. You know, it wasn't like, oh, I'm so sorry because we're exploiting these people. It was, this is very contradictory. This is, this is not in keeping with our idealism. Well, he's very idealistic in terms of vice and virtue also. Right. So his abolitionism didn't really engage people on an emotional level. I mean, in New England, where slavery was very weak, where there were very few black people, where the black people who were there were mostly freedmen, who in a lot of cases owned little businesses. Uh, he's puritanical in a way. Yes, he's very puritanical. Um, it really didn't come up, you know, it's like, well, you know, there's some black guys around here, you know, and they seem to be okay guys, you know, and they don't really interact with us that much, you know, they are Baptists or, you know, some other, some other denomination, they don't go to church with us. Um, they kind of live off by themselves, you know, wherever, down by the wharf or wherever they live, and, you know, they're okay, but, you know, they're really not part of our world. Can I, can I read a quote from sure. his private journal? And he's talking about the Missouri question, which was a question of slavery, right? Right. How to expand slavery into the West. Okay. And this is from early. This is actually before he became president. Yeah. The discussion of the Missouri question has betrayed... You, and you can comment on it afterwards. Uh, yeah. The discussion of the Missouri question has betrayed the secret of their souls. In the abstract, they admit that slavery is an evil. They disclaim it and cast it all upon the shoulder of Great Britain. But when probed to the quick upon it, they show at the bottom of their souls pride and vainglory in their condition of masterdom. They look down upon the simplicity of a Yankee's manners because he has no habits of overbearing like theirs and cannot treat Negroes like dogs. 
It is among the evils of slavery that it taints the very sources of moral principle. It establishes false estimates of virtue and vice. For what can be more false and heartless than this doctrine which makes the first and holiest rights of humanity to depend upon the color of the skin? Okay, this is a really complex statement. It needs to be unpacked a little bit. Okay, first of all, the statement that he made about the slave owners looking down on the simple manners of the New Englanders, mm. this was something, you know, all the way back to Washington. I, I, I just finished McCullough's uh, 1776, mm -hmm. and Washington hated the Yankees precisely for that reason. He thought they were unruly, uh, too given to drinking, too grasping in, in terms of, of trying to advance their careers and their bank accounts. Washington? Washington. this way about who? About the New Englanders. Okay. About the Bostonians. You know, I mean, and, 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 and this persists. I mean, Southerners tend to look at Northerners as pretty money-grubbing. Overly commercial. Overly commercial, you know, and themselves as having some kind of higher ideals. Mm. So, uh, you know, so there, there probably was a degree of resentment from snubs and slights that he had experienced through his career in Washington, mm -hmm. D.C. Uh, but I think the other thing about the inherent evilness, the inherent wickedness of chattel slavery. Now, I've, I've often spoken to people like in the Roman times when all work was done by muscle. Mm -hmm. You know, you couldn't pay everybody for everything, so having slaves was kind of understandable. Not excusable, mm -hmm. but understandable. And if you look at the Roman Republic, I mean, everybody has all these over overblown ideas about how the Roman Republic collapsed. It collapsed from slavery because the Roman citizen, the Franklin Yeoman class of Romans, were put out of business by the slave estates. Mm. You know, a, a guy trying to run a farm, depending on his sons and on hired hands, can't compete with an estate with 60 or 70 slaves mm -hmm. who work for nothing. Mm -hmm. And Adams could see that. You know, like most of the New Englanders, he could see that slave labor gave the Southerners an immense advantage in economics that was insuperable. I mean, if you can take a whole class of people, and, and they were millions of people even mm -hmm. back then, mm -hmm. and put them to work and take the fruits of their labor without paying them anything, yeah, appropriate, appropriate mm -hmm. the fruits of their labor, a, a free person can't compete against that. But he did also seem to see it in moral, in moral terms. And, and Adams was, like you say, he was a Puritan, so he also saw it as an offense against religion an offense against Christianity, an offense against humanity. And he didn't like the, the overbearing, uh, as he calls it, vainglory and pride of the way they treated them. How, how do you maintain control over slaves? You know, you have 300 slaves, you have maybe 40 overseers, you have your family, you know, you're outnumbered 12 or 15 to 1. How do you maintain control? I mean, it's just by sheer brutality. I just think the amazing thing is, is is how entangled the system of slavery was that you have John Quincy Adams, who was going on in four years to be president, writing so, I mean, 
writing about it like this, and then and obviously everybody knew. Jefferson knew. He was very aware that slavery was bad, but he still knew it was good economics, and he also knew that. Well, it's horrible economics. Well, he knew that he could make money off it. Yeah, that's what I mean. But he also knew that not only did it destroy the the victims of slavery, the slave class, but it destroyed the. It destroyed the, the beneficiaries of the system. It, it destroyed them too because it made them into monsters. Well, Jimmy Carter made that point in his campaigns for governor of Georgia and for president of the United States that we become as enslaved as the slaves. Mm -hmm. You know, the master class becomes as enslaved as the slaves, and that ours is more grotesque. Yeah. Because ours is a metaphysical, moral, and yeah. religious enslavement. That's true. And the weird, but the weird thing to me is just when you get, it's like, it's like this South was trapped and the country was trapped in this kind of like social sin and they couldn't entangle themselves from it. So, uh, in New England, when they teach the Compromise of 1820, the one that you just discussed Maine, about the expansion, Maine. they call it the main misery compromise, mm -hmm. you know, misery being Missouri, but mm -hmm. it's also misery. Mm -hmm. It's the main misery. The, the, the curse of chattel slavery. Mm. The curse of creating a slave race. Which, while they had revolutionary pretensions, they nonetheless were willing to create a slave race. Yeah. It's very ironic. All right. So, what 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 points do you want to end with? What about? So I want to. I, I just want to follow up a little bit on the the diary uh, entry, and that uh, for eighteen years, uh, Adams accepted First Amendment petitions. Okay, the First Amendment says we have the right to petition officials. Okay. And he actively he actively solicited. Through his this is post presidency. This is post presidency. This is eighteen years that he was that he was in, sure. in the U.S. House of Representatives. Is he the only president to go on to serve yes. in Congress afterwards? Yes. He must have been a hardworking guy. Yeah, he was. He was. Yeah, um, through his his surrogates, he solicited petitions from his New England constituents to abolish slavery. First Amendment says citizenry has the right to submit those petitions. The rules of Congress at the time, mm -hmm. probably still, say that when the petitions are submitted, the member has the right of the floor to read them. Okay. So in every session of Congress, he would read these petitions. He would read those petitions against slavery. Wow. For 18 years. Holy crap. That's something. He's a he's a strange guy. He's a he's an interesting guy. What um, what do you think are the are the? Uh, do you consider him to be both capable and incapable? What are your what are the lessons you take from? So if you could so, boil so it down I, to a I, I I he he had he had severe arthritis. Uh, there's a famous picture of him in old age, and his fingers are like, you know, twisted mm -hmm. down. So you can see, you know, he obviously suffered from rheumatoid arthritis. Mm -hmm. Kept working. I think he was like 80 yeah. before he retired. Yeah. You know, uh, despite his physical pain and his physical deformity and the crippling effects 
of that disease on him. He kept working. Uh, he never became a wealthy man, mm -hmm. despite his vast experience and his array of contacts. He never used them for personal gain. I mean, like I said, he definitely... He's really uh, got a stiff upper lip. He, he, he definitely had some kind of a, of a, of a arrangement so that he could afford to travel and you know, do all the things he did, but he kept it honorable, you know, at least by the contemporary standards. Uh, he was not hypocritical. He did not utilize slave labor. You know, like no scandals. No scandals. Um, his sons became prominent diplomats, prominent American intellectuals. He honored his mother and his father, you know, through his whole life. Uh, his religious ideas were very complicated, very Christian. Mm -hmm. uh, and he was also into science. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was well educated and he believed, you know, like Louis, he was fascinated with the Lewis and Clark discoveries sure. and all that. Um, and he was very competent in running the government. I mean, if, if he had been in the British system where there's a civil service, he probably would have risen to the top of the civil service. And he probably is more of a civil service type than a political type. Yeah, he doesn't seem that much political acumen. You know, I mean, it seems that he should have been one of these people who entered the civil service at an early age and then became like a GS whatever, you mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, undersecretary ran a department, you know, ran it very well. Um, but he also had such a wide array of interests and such a broad frame of mind and had uh, a background enough that he could go into, into politics. And I think the satisfaction he derived from politics was the fact that he could do a lot of things. Mm -hmm. You know, everything came back to him. If he had been in one department, he would have been really good at that, but he would have been limited Isolated. to that one mm -hmm. department. So I think he saw politics as where he could have a hand in everything and have influence on the entire government. Yeah. And, uh, Middling success, but middling success primarily because he had such a radical idea in the context of the times. I mean, the idea of abolition was something that the American public just wasn't prepared to accept. Yeah. So he was ahead of his times. Um, unfortunately, it came to a bloody war. You know, we did not figure out a way to, to deal with it politically. No, so, so you know, we really can't fault him. I mean, none of us figured out how. But sure. He he was a pathfinder. He never lost faith in finding a political solution to slavery. He constantly kept saying, "Like guys, let's do it this way. Yeah. It'll work." Nobody listened to him. We ended up with civil war. So, uh, he I think he's one of the exemplary people. It's interesting. In he's a very gifted person, history. but not not an overly forceful person. Well, he was forceful. I mean, he he did. Operated the highest, huh? He's not Jackson. Well, I mean, there were people who were more forceful, but he's, you know, he's up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah. And uh, I mean, Jackson, to a large degree, was so forceful because he was so in touch and so believed in the popular prejudices of the time. Okay. Okay. And Adams didn't. Yeah, I think Adams and is a Adams real fought case study those in Yeah, he's a very he's very refined individual. You know, and you, and you fight prejudices and you're going to get, you know, you're going to have a lot of arrows in your chest, you know? Well, he seemed like he could take them. He's pretty he's pretty he does have that stiff upper lip. I mean, when I think when I think of of Adams, you know, I mean, Saint Sebastian was a martyr and he was tied to a stake 
and then whoever martyred him shot arrows into him. Yeah. And I, I tend to think of Adams as being like St. Sebastian, you know, tied to that stake, mm -hmm. taking the arrows, but still proclaiming the gospel. Mm -hmm. You know, in Adams' case, the gospel was progress, mm -hmm. uh, national government, abolition. Mm -hmm. And he never, he never backed off. What, what, what president do you want to do next? Uh, maybe Jackson. Okay, we'll, we'll figure it out, because we, we'll maybe either Jackson, yeah, let's, let's um, think it over. All right, so this was uh, Philip. And Robert. And thank you for listening to this episode of Presidential Podcast. We hope to get some comments, and uh, we look forward to being able to do another episode. Live and be well. <laughs>